see. These things never work on first try. Maybe we'll be lucky. I don't know. Adam, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear you too. Wow, first try. I was just saying how it never works on the first try. You see, oh, you might see a little mini me, and then you'll see yourself just to make things. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> to make things as strange as possible. Uh, how are things going? All good. Things are going great. How are you, man? Uh, I'm doing fantastic. I had a really good uh, night last night. I consumed an entire Netflix series in one go, uh, start to finish. Thank you so much. I have seen uh, all of the G word. Uh, I have many questions, but uh, I did want to start with a big uh, well done. It's a a very interesting series. Um, I I, I think I would best describe it as... uh, Maybe a cohesive uh, Monty Python with uh, less sketches, but more uh, more investigation ideas. Or I was saying at the start of the stream, if someone had all the powers of the Matrix to walk into that little like white room in the background, but they were using it to teach people about the government, I could also sure. describe it as that. Yeah. Um, what uh, What was the idea behind this? Did you Did you get a pitch from from Netflix? Did you pitch a show to Netflix? Uh, how did How did the whole thing start? Yeah. Let me tell you, and but first, I'm just uh, I'm tweeting that we're doing this right mm. now. I'm sorry. This mm-hmm. is this is the bring, problem with Twitch is you always have to. Okay, bring the uh, bring the eyeballs tweet. in. Tweet. Here I am. Okay. So how did this come about? So I had uh, read you know, around 2018 the Michael Lewis book, The Fifth Risk. Michael Lewis is you know one of our like a legendary journalist. You know, he wrote Moneyball, all these other books. He wrote a book called The Fifth Risk, which is his investigation of the federal government. It starts out being about the Trump transition, and it goes into you know, him following the story where it leads into you know, the story of like all the incredibly complex and deep things the government does. His point being that like, you know, it's very hard to figure out how to run such an organization. Um, and I read this book. I thought, wow, it's incredible. You know, God willing, I'd love to do something about it on TV sometime. About seven months later, I get a call from my manager. My manager says, hey, uh, Barack and Michelle Obama's company, Higher Ground, has optioned this Michael Lewis book called The Fifth Risk, and they want to know if you want to pitch on it. And I was like, yes, uh, because I love the book. Um, and I went in. They, they had wanted to turn it into a TV show, but they didn't have you know a concept yet for what it would be. And I pitched, well, how about... I do it, you know, in my style. I'll do a, you know, visual investigative comedy about all the things that the government uh, does to affect our lives, both good and bad. We'll meet, you know, we'll go on location, meet the people who work for the federal government at the lowest level, right? The the on the ground blue collar workers who make it run. They liked that idea. Uh, we took it to Netflix where they had a deal and we made the show. That was three years ago. Uh, COVID slowed us down quite a lot, uh, obviously, uh, delayed us by over a year. But now the show is finally out, and, you know, I kind of couldn't be prouder about it. So the show opens with a scene with you and Barack Obama, who I was quite impressed to see that he actually has some acting chops because he's, you know, he's playing himself, but he's playing, obviously, a comedic version of himself. Um, Did he have any oversight or did his production team have any oversight over what you could or could not talk about uh, in terms of your writing? So glad you asked this question. And I knew that I would receive this question. And so I've been planning literally the whole show around <laughs> this question. Um, so the answer the answer to your question is no, not directly. Um, uh, I made it very clear to them from the beginning that the show would not be credible uh, if it was seen as Obama administration or Obama organization propaganda, right? If it was putting across their point of view and that I would not be interested in making such a show and that I needed editorial independence so that I could follow my own train of reasoning and my own curiosity where it led. And they agreed to that and to their word, uh, they they stuck to it. There were a couple times I had to remind them to stick to it, right? But that's, you know, no different from any creative process. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we were, we were largely able to make the show that we wanted to make. Um, you know, I compare it to, uh, it, it's very similar to when I was making a show for True TV, a cable channel, on advertising-supported television. And, you know, this is a show that makes its money from advertisers, right? And we, on that show, criticized advertisers all the time. And sometimes the network would go, oh, we don't know if you, we we, we like that one. And I would have to go to bat for it, and I would win. 
and once or twice I lost with True TV, but in that case, I then later talked about that happening on the show, right? Because um, I I was, uh, you know, that's my philosophy. I try to pick big fights and uh, I try to be transparent with the audience about our process and I let them know when things don't go our way. Uh, And that's how I sleep at night and that's how I think you can make uh, the only way to make a, a media product with integrity under capitalism. Um, so I took this challenge uh, uh, very much the same way that I was like, you know, there's going to be some times that I need to really push for something. I really need to push to do a certain topic. And in fact, I chose topics specifically that I knew I would have to push for because part of my philosophy is when I am making a show like this, I like to find the topic that nobody thinks that we can do, that the, the cynical part of the audience is going to say, no way is he ever going to be able to talk about this. And then I go talk about that thing. Uh, so that's my, that's my philosophy. Um, and, uh, I, I'm happy to say that it, that it, uh, I think it was born out in the final product. What did you think? Uh, well, I at first had, cause the opening scene again is with Obama. I had this very strong vibe that this whole thing was kind of going to be a bit of a promotional tool for say the democratic party or just, uh, spend a lot of time maybe criticizing elements of Republicans but then you wouldn't really touch on uh, the Democrats or even specifically Obama. So, and I guess this is a slight spoiler warning, but the entire show is about history. So, I mean, if you are unaware of U.S. history, then this is a spoiler. But I was a little astounded in the Willy Wonka sequence that you actually started talking about Obama's war crimes, including specifically drone strikes and the increase in drone strikes. And so I wanted to ask, like... Did did he watch this? Did were you nervous when you were writing this? Were were you just like I am hoping we can get Obama to miss this one screen? Like or were you like here's how I should word it to maybe not make it seem as bad as it is? Like that that was actually a surprising moment in the show. I didn't expect to, that I'd be seeing that. I appreciate that, and that is what I was specifically referring to when I say I go into it trying to pick the biggest fight that I can, right? Or or the fight that I think is most worthy of fighting. But the thing is that, you know, the segment that we do on drone strikes is, first of all, situated within our entire critique of the U.S. government's relationship with technology, um, where, you know, we talk about how the U.S. government is responsible for so many of the incredible technological innovations that have transformed our lives, like GPS, like the fucking computer mouse. You know, like all of these wild things. That's the first half of the episode is about. Then we reveal that the only reason the federal government invented those things is generally for military technology. Our government's R&D tends to serve military primarily. There's a couple exceptions. The NIH, for instance, we devote a huge amount of money to the NIH, the largest funder of biomedical research in the world. Obviously, that is not military. But like if you look at where the government is spending its research dollars, you know, the only reason, for instance, we know about the structure of the atom is that the U.S. government was trying to build an atomic bomb. Right. And and that brought us Einstein and, uh, you know, Einstein and all of them doing like uh, uh, work on, you know, the atomic structure. Right. So uh, the best example of that phenomenon, in our view, and that tension is drones because like drones are another transformational technology i'm just talking about the drones that you can go buy at best buy right um that wedding photographers use um but the only reason we have those drones is because of innovations that darpa made when they were developing the combat drone the predator and the reaper drone and those drones have been used to kill thousands upon thousands of people including thousands of civilians and specifically it's not just that, you know, the order was given by such and such a person. It's the technology itself enabled the strikes to be ordered more often. Because if you don't have to risk an American pilot's life, then you're, you're more likely to order an airstrike that you, you know, might not send an American pilot into Syria, but you'll st- send a drone. Because if the drone gets shot down, who gives a shit, right, mm-hmm. is, the, is the thinking of, of the folks who run our military. Um, so uh, that analysis that we, I just gave and that we give on the show is extremely mainstream. Anyone who studies drones like understands that this is what's happened. If you look at the entire scope of our, you know, drone strike program, which again increased tenfold under under the Obama administration. Um that that was the administration that sort of uh mainlined it, that took it from a niche thing to a major way that the American military wages war. So I I was not nervous about sending that about making that segment and about, uh, you know, saying that up the chain because I knew that it was true. I knew that it would result in some difficult conversations. Right. Mm-hmm. And the people who 
here's how it works. The people who work for the people who work for Obama said, are you, sh are you sure you <laughs> want to do this topic? And I said, yes, I am. And they said, well, we're going to really have to fact check it. And I said, go ahead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And yeah. then they did and they couldn't really find anything to object to, you know, um, and uh, and that was the segment that we made. You know, look, um, obviously, uh, Barack Obama is doing a lot of things. He's not creatively involved in the day to day of the show. He read every script one time. We had oh, really? one phone call where he gave us his thoughts um, on that call. He talked about a lot of different things and all of his notes are like, take it or leave it. Uh, here's here's a thought I'd share. Take it or leave it. Right. Said a couple of helpful things, said a lot of things that were way off base and, and didn't connect um, on drones. He said, hey, here's what I think. And then proceeded to explain his his entire drone program, which was not a new explanation. You can go watch. He's on record with all this stuff. You can go watch him talk about it for half an hour to various news organizations. He's spoken in front of students. A student will get up and say, hey, the drone program killed thousands of, of civilians. How do you explain yourself? And he will tell you what he tells you. You know, like that's he's got his answer. He gave that his entire answer to us on the phone. And we said, uh, okay, we disagree. <laughs> and then, you know, that was the end of the conversation. So, uh, and, you know, and, and then we, we shot the segment. Um, so uh, that is, look, uh, if people still want to have a cynical point of view, how could, how could Obama possibly be involved in a show like this? Isn't, this, isn't there a conflict here? Um, I'm happy to entertain that conversation, but you know, it's it, to me, it's about the nitty gritty of the creative space that you that you carve out for yourself and what you can do within that space. And I worked extremely hard in order to create that space for us on our show. And I think the fact that we did that segment is like, you know, the the proofs in the fucking pudding, you know. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the series, when I was watching it, it seems to come from a place of, first off, I, I didn't know that one in 16 uh, workers in America worked for the federal government. Uh, what, what a monstrously huge employer it was of people. But a lot of it seems to be about restoring faith in uh, publicly funded institutions, perhaps, is, is the way I could put this. Because the, the first couple episodes feel like you were just in sheer amazement at the kind of things that are being done from, uh, again, uh, publicly funded governmental programs, uh, you know, from the uh, the USDA inspecting all of the meat in the entire country, all the way to the way that uh, weather services work. Uh, and a lot of that was uh, a learning experience for me. Was, was that the initial approach to kind of, because I know in the polarized America we find ourselves today, there's a very large section of both uh, American voters uh, who have lost all faith in the government and the government is often seen as the enemy right uh, were, is that yeah. how you were trying to approach kind of the initial couple episodes of the show I mean uh, I think that's a pretty good way to put it actually uh, look we're we were not setting out to like tell people how to feel about the government but um, you know, it's my belief that we have lost sight of, of what the hell it is the government does. I mean, we just don't know these stories. The government is so incredibly massive, the United States government, that we just don't know what it's responsible for. And so we're not seeing the things that it does well, and we're not seeing the ways in which it is corrupted, you know, by uh, outside corporations or by ideology or by uh, you know, other forces. Um, or ways in which it, it has misstructured itself. You know, I don't want to just put it on the outside. Um, you know, just ways that, you know, a certain department, FEMA is a really great example. FEMA is just a department that because of the bureaucratic structure of it is fucked. It can't operate independently because it is frankly misstructured as an agency. Um, and, uh, you know, as a result, people don't know these things. And so people just tend to yell at the same politicians over and over again. Um, expecting a different result without understanding what's going on. Um, so, you know, like I said at the beginning of the series, we, every four years, we start screaming our heads off, or frankly, all four years around the clock, we scream our heads off about who's going to run the government, but we know almost nothing about it, you know? So you end up with this funny situation, we don't talk about this on the show, but Michael Lewis does in the book, about how, you know, Rick Perry, when he was running for president, said he wanted to eliminate the Department of Energy, <laughs> and then he was appointed, when Trump became president, to run the Department of Energy, and I'm pretty sure... After day two, he didn't think it should be eliminated anymore because he learned the Department of Energy is responsible for making sure our nuclear weapons don't accidentally explode. It's responsible for disposing of nuclear waste, like in, you know, thousand 
yard catacombs below the ground that have to be kept safe for tens of thousands of years. Um, it's responsible for, uh, you know, it's, it's also the one of the largest research institutions of the government that's responsible for research and clean energy. Um, it's like a massively important organization and the dude fucking running for president <laughs> didn't know that about it. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's, there's a basic piece of civic education that needed to be done. And look, as a as an entertainer, as a comedian, I'm always looking for for amazement. I'm always looking for that feeling of like, holy shit, I had no idea. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. That's what makes me respond to an article I read or a book I read or whatever. And so that's what I want to bring to the audience. That's just fucking fun to hear those kinds of stories, you know. Um, but on top of that, like beyond all of that, um, I'll admit there's a little bit of a political project here too because uh, we have – you know, the, the campaign against the government has been so long and so relentless that we have forgotten about the ability of the government to do big things. You know, we have forgotten that, you know, in the first part of the last century, meat was making everybody sick, right? People were getting sick from tainted meat and other foods as well until the federal government stepped in and instituted massive food regulation. I mean, literally, as we say, there is a USDA inspector on the line at every single meat plant, multiple of them, uh, inspecting every single piece of meat that you eat. And that's something that like, if you were to propose that today about an industry that's hurting us just as much, um, you'd be laughed out by politicians on both parties, and a lot of oh, Americans yeah. probably say it's un-American to like send an inspector in every day. When in reality, we're we're fucking doing it right. Um, talk about how there's a constant tiresome debate in the U.S. about how the government, how much the government should be involved in healthcare. We show that if the government weren't involved in healthcare, there are entire swaths of the country, mostly rural parts of the country, that would have no healthcare at all because the only healthcare in those places is provided by federally paid workers. Um, so, you know, what what we're trying to show here is that the government, when it is allowed to do its job, when it's empowered to, is able to solve our biggest problems in ways that nobody else is. And if we can, like, remind ourselves of that, we might be a little bit more inclined next time we have a big problem to let the government be one of our solutions that we turn to. Well, here was the part, I think it was in the second episode, because you talk about how, and I didn't know this either, how the weather uh, and the predicting the weather is actually done uh, on a massive scale, thanks to government employees who then provide that data and information publicly, uh, and people then yeah. take that, and that's how you get your local weather reports, is just going to take that information and data that people are being paid for by the government to ascertain. And that was the episode two, where you start introducing this new element, which is that AccuWeather and the Weather Network, private corporations, will also yeah. take that, they will repack package it and then try to turn a profit off that and in this way it seems like corporations and the profit motive behind them starts to take publicly funded systems and make them worse on a regular basis now obviously that's with intent i think you do it very subtly but that that becomes a constant theme throughout the next couple of episodes yeah. so were you trying to drive home that there has to either be a balance that is struck or that there is this element where people don't recognize how effective public programs can be and then how destructive private ones can be? I mean, the 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 intent is certainly to show how powerful and important public programs can be just to try to remind people of the idea of a public good. Right. Which we do have some, you know, in some parts of our society, people understand why public libraries are good, you know, by and large. People do love their public libraries. People love the mail. Right. They love the U.S. Postal Service. They understand that this is like an important public service. They, they get it. Right. Um, and we're trying to show them that like public goods exist everywhere in our society. And the National Weather Service is one that like no private organization predicts the weather across the country. The National Weather Service has, you know, 80 to 100 weather observation posts that are staffed by thousands of scientists that are collecting basic data and processing that into forecasts. And then they give that data and those forecasts to everybody for free you go to weather.gov you can either get the you know consumer friendly forecast yourself or you can download like fucking terabytes of weather data and like create your own weather model do whatever the hell you like right and you know it's not a problem that private corporations are taking that data and repackaging it that's literally what the data is is there for right it's like 
you, you can make the case that that benefits absolutely everyone. Whether you're a free market capitalist or you're a socialist, both of you should like that program, right? Yeah. Because there are like tons of businesses that are built on this data. Um, the same way we also talk about how you know the, the government invented the GPS system, right? And currently runs the GPS system as a private utility for everybody. That, or sorry, as a public utility for everybody. That benefits the public. It also benefits all the businesses that have made billions of dollars off of it. And they haven't hurt anybody by by or they haven't like taken anything away from the from the public good by using the by taking you know by using the gps system because it's it's uh you know it's not a zero-sum game uh, the more people use it the better the system is not the worse right same thing with weather data the problem is when the companies either a take credit for the innovation without sharing any of it with the government, you know, when people like, uh, you know, the, the CEOs of Uber or Google or Tesla try to advocate for less power for the government, they try to advocate for lower taxes, they try to say, you know, free market capitalism did it all by ourselves without acknowledging the fact that like their businesses are literally built on the back of a government utility. I think that's bad because <laughs> yeah. it's a it's a false ideology. And even worse is when they try to undermine the government, which is what AccuWeather specifically does. AccuWeather has specifically uh, uh, tried to through and they have not successfully fully done this, but um, they have tried to restrict the ability of the weather service to communicate with the public so that instead uh, they are the only ones who have access to that data. And that is what I have a real problem with. This kind of, um, I'd say, coalesces in the episode afterwards where you talk about money because that's the episode where both ideas kind of come into frame where it's like the government can work for the people in the case of the government actually helping companies that need it. However, it seems to go to the wealthiest individuals, the wealthiest corporations above all else, and that the government has become corrupted in that sense and that it's not actually trying to help the mom and pops, the uh, two or three uh, you know business people or the co-ops or the unionized jobs, but it goes towards massive, massive companies. Um, was that... In, intended to show that that same kind of corruption works its way and then the government doesn't serve the people in that sense? I mean, in terms of the money going, I think there's a couple things happening there where, you know, the money that the government creates doesn't get to the right people. Um, number one is the disproportionate power that corporations have um, in to get that money, right? Number two, though, is it's it's just the fucking way of the world. You know, it's that uh, those with power get more, those without power get less. And, uh, you know, I say at the very end that, you know, my production company got a PPP loan, right? And we got a PPP loan that was much larger than the the two women of color who want to run a daycare here in Los Angeles who only got $6,000 and had to shut down, right? Yeah. Um, and the reason I got a larger PPP loan for my production company is we have a we have a better accountant. We have a bigger bank, you know, like we had more resources to procure that money. And like, you know, we needed the money to keep going. But like that was the right. That's that's unjust. I can understand that's an unjust system. Um, and so in that case, it's for us a call to the government to say like this sort of imbalance is the only only the government can correct this imbalance, right? Only the government is able to say, no, we are going to direct resources towards those who need it the most rather than those who already have the most advantages. But that takes constant vigilance to enforce, right? Um, so, uh, you know, to give you an example, take public transit, right? That's what public transit does. Public transit is an investment on the part of the government that says we're going to devote extra resources to people who don't have the resources for a private automobile, right? Um, that's That should be the fucking point. Yet, if you look everywhere, say here in Los Angeles where I live, you will see better transit service in the wealthier areas. You'll see that they'll send, uh, you know, a heavy rail subway train to, you know, all the way from where I live in Los Feliz to Santa Monica, right? but they won't put it to the poorer areas. Um, so what you're seeing there is you're seeing like a government that knows how to, you know, that, that they need to create a public good that even the poorest can use, but you still see the greater power dynamics at work, right? Where the white homeowners who are wealthy get to demand more services from the government. And so in my view, it takes constant vigilance on the part of the government and on the part of the people who are electing others, right? Um, to make sure that we break those power dynamics. 
So that's, for instance, just to give you an example, we have a bunch of, uh, we have a wonderful crop of progressive activists who are running for local office here in Los Angeles for city council seats. Um, Nithya Raman ran a few years ago, um, and we currently have this year running Hugo Soto Martinez and Enesis. Uh, 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 oh fuck, I fucked it up. Unesis Hernandez, no um, who are running for two other city council seats. Um, all people of color, all people running to represent the working class. Hugo Soto Martinez is a Unite Here activist, uh, a Unite Here organizer. Sorry, of the hospitality union here, and they are specifically running. If you look at their platforms, they are looking to protect renters right versus every other everyone else running for city council has always run to protect the interest of homeowners and that's a huge difference and the electorate is starting to figure that out and saying oh wait we need to protect uh renters interests more than homeowners um but it's not the default right the default is the wealthier get more and so that's something that i think we always constantly have to be pushing for i i think that it however is not a failure of it's something that happens when corporations and the wealthy infect the government, but we also need to recognize it as just, this is like, it's a, it's a law of nature, right? Mm -hmm. The rich get richer. The more money you have, the more power you have, the more power you have, the more you can hoard for yourself. And so you have to build systems that are counter to that. Um, and that is what we are trying to advocate for on the show. It's unfortunate. I'm, I'm not going to derail too much with this, but you give a great example about that in farmer uh, surpluses, which was initially something to help farmers during the Great Depression. And then that money continued on to this day. And now that there's a monopolistic control over the farming industry, they still get the same amounts and bursaries from the government. Uh, and yet they are very yeah. wealthy private companies and we haven't turned that off. Um, so it's kind of yeah. like the initial system for good that actually bailed a bunch of farmers out is now being uh, used by these massive corporations. And this is this is what happens, right? This is like what we have to eternally watch out and make sure this does not happen. This is the job of of a informed citizenry, right? Mm -hmm. Is to like pay attention. That's what journalism is for. That's what I try to do is to point out when these things are happening and advocate for them and try to disrupt that from happening. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's it, but it doesn't mean when you see that happen, it doesn't mean that the government can't do anything. It means that, okay, here's an area that we need to fucking fix, right? Mm -hmm. If we it's, want, it's if we want better regulation, we need to make it happen. It's just it's it's like it's baffling because I don't think people realize and you you laid out really clearly how it's connected. Like you don't wonder when you walk to the supermarket why everything is made of corn or corn syrup. Why yeah. corn is the most abundant food source in this country and why everything contains it. Yeah. And it's so bad for you. It's so high in sugar and all this kind of stuff. But it's for that very reason. It dates all the way back to those surpluses and then they had to overproduce those crops. So I, I think that's a great point. I guess what I yeah. would want to ask you. What made you think, hey, this is the time to teach everybody about modern monetary theory. Let's get Penn and Teller. <laughs> like what, what, what connected those Look, two things? <laughs> you know what's really funny? You know what's really funny is that uh, – uh, so we did a whole segment on how the government creates money, you know, and, and specifically – uh, it, it, that came from just, uh, during the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about it, right? Because the government flooded the economy with cash to keep the, the system moving. And so look, this, this show happened. We were literally in our writer's room for one week and then the shutdown happened. Hmm. Right. And so we ended up writing the show around rather than all of these academic questions about the government we had active questions we were like where the fuck is all the money coming from <laughs> you know like people are confused economics and that that sort of thing is very confusing and so we you know did a we said okay let's break it down um and did a segment that just attempted to explain where the hell the money's coming from now let me tell you something we did not intend to go prove any particular theory about <laughs> <laughs> about uh, uh, the, the nature of the government and money. We just attempted to tell a pretty common sense uh, or pretty, pretty mainstream view of how those things interact. Um, if that supports modern monetary theory, I'm very happy to hear it, but it was not, it was not our particular intent, um, which is, by the way, how I think of like most of my work is I don't set out trying to you know, uh, spread the word about a particular ideology. I, I set out trying to spread the word about the truth. And if the truth leads you to an ideology, well, go nuts. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> if people want to look at this show and say, hey, this is a show about socialism. It's a show about how the government is, you know, we should put more parts of society under public auspices. 
go ahead. You can make that political argument or, or that policy argument. Um, if that came from your analysis of the truth, uh, happy to have it. But, you know, my, my goal is to go out and, and represent reality um, and advocate for justice rather than suffering. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I'll let everybody else apply the isms to it as we discussed last time I was on this stream. True. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, we were just trying to, we were just trying to figure it out. Um, and, uh, the idea of doing it with Penn and Teller came from the fact that, you know, in a lot of ways, it seems like a magic trick, right? How can the government create something from nothing? But in reality, it does every single day. And, you know, I guess what I'll say to the modern monetary part of that, modern monetary theory part of that is... If that, uh, if that demonstrates to the audience that the government is not at the whims of the economy, but in fact create the econo economic conditions that we live under, and therefore we could expand our view of what is possible economically if the government were to actually throw its weight around, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I, well, like, I, I, I don't know. That, that's interesting to hear because I, when I was watching that, I was like, this has to be the most clear and concise way anyone has broken down MMT. And now they're doing it on a mainstream show like Netflix. This was actually really neat to see. And you got Penn and Teller doing their Penn and Teller stuff and in the middle of all of it. Um, so glad you feel that way. Moving to the uh, the development programs of the government and all the amazing things, you framed that whole episode around a very Steve Jobs-like character, although it's kind of more Zuckerberg-ish, I guess. It's a fusion. I would say that's kind of like a, yeah, a, a pastiche. Composite, yeah. yeah, yeah, of, of all the tech bros. Um, and I, I guess the point behind it being, again, you wanted to emphasize uh, how... These major, massive companies that now dominate our lives in more ways than one seem to always kind of take credit, as well as the free market, for the ability for their genius to be recognized and sold and mass-produced for these incredible innovations. And then you went through how so many of them actually were made through social programs that people are unaware. What um, what did you discover along that road, or did you already know a lot about that? And why did you specifically start to talk about things like the the mouse pointer itself, all the way to GPS, and then? If you can remember all this one final question in that, yeah. for the GPS and the way the military still controls it, is is that unique globally or does other countries must have their own satellites, I'd imagine? Because if the United States military wanted to, they could just shut down those services for uh, enemy countries or something. So I was really curious about well, that as well. I, I think this is really interesting. So, um, so first of all, we knew that we wanted to do something about everything that the government has invented that we don't normally give the government credit for. I knew just from reading you know, intuitively that that was the source of, of uh, so many inventions. I just didn't know which ones particularly. Um, so, you know, we, we told our, our research staff, hey, go, go look off in that direction and see what you find. One of them came, uh, one of our researchers, I believe his name is Sam Rodman. Um, I, mean, I know his name is Sam Rodman. I believe it was him. <laughs> came back and said uh, uh, that... You know, the biggest one is GPS that our government invented and still runs the entire GPS network for the entire world today. And it's a free public utility. And that was one of the stories. I always look for the ones that make us go holy shit in the writer's room, make us go like, oh, my God, I had no idea. And that was one of them to a T. Absolutely. Because um, I had no idea about that. I never really had a sense of how GPS worked. I knew it was satellites and I knew it was separate from the internet and from um, any other, you know, uh, uh, from cell phone towers. Because I don't know if you've ever had the experience of being way out, you know, on a long hike. You're super far from a cell phone tower. You don't have a cell phone signal, but you still get GPS. You still get right? GPS, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and you don't get GPS very well inside, even though you get a cell phone signal. So we, I knew it was satellites. Um but uh, so first of all, that that to us is just the best example of like this is a hidden thing the government does that nobody knows about. Um, and it is, again, as as you said, to answer your question, it's free for the entire world. Um, now, my understanding is and this is where it's getting a little bit into the technical particulars that that this is my understanding. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit out on a limb because I'm not an expert on satellite technology. But my understanding is that the government actually cannot turn it off for um, other companies or other countries because it's not that your, your GPS phone is not pinging the satellite. It's not like making a request to the satellite and the satellite's going, oh, okay, I like this phone. Let me send a signal back. The GPS satellites are just constantly going like, 
pinging. They're just constantly going, here I am, here I am, here I am, here I am, as they go through the sky. Okay. And your phone is getting a signal from two or, th two or more satellites simultaneously, and it's able to judge, okay, based on where that satellite is and based on where that satellite is, I can figure out where I am. So um, I don't believe it's possible for the government to, unless they were to somehow restrict the distribution of GPS receivers in some way, um, I don't think it would be possible for them to do so, but the GPS receivers, I don't think you need a license from the government to make them. I think you can just like, you know, create one that's picking up this signal, you know? So I suppose the government, if they felt like it, they could say, we're updating the signal so it's not compatible with all your old GPS devices and everyone has to buy new ones and we're only selling those in the US, right? Right, but, but they couldn't just turn it that, off it be... from their end and then prevent, say, like a, an enemy combatant country uh, from not receiving GPS. Like they wouldn't be able to do that without yeah. turning all of it off. Is what you're saying yeah it, it's like a lighthouse basically mm -hmm. right a lighthouse works for everybody no matter where you are that's my understanding of it at the same time um i believe that china and i think russia are annoyed that their entire nations are dependent on this u.s technology mm -hmm. so they are launching their own gps networks now gotcha um okay. I, I, so i'm not sure and this is where it's outside of my my realm yeah, of knowledge. Yeah, yeah. If you if you were to go to China today, buy a Chinese cell phone, would it use GPS from the U.S. satellites, or are they using Chinese satellites at this point? I'm not entirely sure. But mm. if you go to South Africa, they're using the U.S. satellites. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, um, yeah, it's it, and it's like so so this this technology. It took the U.S. government about 50 years to develop it. Um, it was, you know, it, it started when they uh, the initial insight came from when uh, U.S. scientists were tracking Sputnik, um, and they spent the next 50 years putting the satellites up and then developing the receiver technology and making it teeny tiny so it could fit in basically anything. It's now extremely cheap. You can put it in uh, almost any technology you want. Um, and uh, uh, they, but here's the thing, it was initially, again, for military purposes, for missile targeting and things like that, um, it was only in the late 90s that they opened it up to the public. And they said, okay, we will de-encrypt the GPS signal so that anybody can use it. Um, and honestly, it, it seems like, this is, this is where the show gets kind of anti-cynical. It seems like the only reason they did it is they were like, sure would be useful for everybody else to have this. <laughs> Why not share it? You know? Yeah. It would yeah. be good for everybody. And that is at its core to me what a government is about, right? A government is or about saying about. like, hey, you know what everybody needs? This. Let's just make it because that makes life better for everybody. You know, mm -hmm. you know what the government, you know, what, you know, what people need free access to books. Let's put a bunch of books in a big room and you can go get them for free. That kind of shit. Right. And that kind of focus on public goods is something that I think we are really desperately missing in uh, the U.S. and I presume in Canada as well. Um, that would bring me to, I guess, my biggest criticism about the show because I've been showering it with glowing praise. So I got to give you one criticism: sure. um, is the episode afterwards. I was expecting you to maybe talk about something related to what the U.S. spends its most discretionary spending on. You did touch a little bit on drone strikes and stuff like that, but in terms of a giant government apparatus, you didn't really talk about either the military or the military-industrial complex, which I know is independent of the government itself. Uh, and I'm wondering, while you do touch on elements of what they do, such as uh, the drone program or how they uh, oversee and run the GPS system, why you didn't want to make uh, an episode on, say, the military. Uh, and even not even from a critical standpoint, because I've heard people say before, the military is the biggest example of a social program in the U.S. where they pay for your health care, they pay for uh, your education, they house you, they, they it's everything that you would want to get from the government, except you also have to kill poor people overseas, which would be the, the additional part, right? <laughs> so I was curious about that. Well, so look, uh, the, the answer to that question is that we knew that we had to do something about the military. That for us, for the six episodes that we had to work with, was our episode called The Future, which is our technology episode. That episode mm -hmm. ends up being primarily uh, a, you know, a criticism of the fact that the U.S. is so military focused, you know, and, you know, at the end, we make the, you know, we make the plea that, like, if we could invest the same amount of, amount of money we do in military technology into all the all of our other problems, like, imagine what we could do. And that is our us sort of backdooring ourselves into that argument. Um, and that is my belief that our military spending is absolutely ludicrous. 
Um, as for why we didn't go directly into that argument and talk about, oh, we spend you know so much of our discretionary spending on military and nothing else. To be honest, part of it is that it's an argument that people have heard before, and my goal is not to you know repeat the same things that I grew up hearing, uh, you know, the same criticisms, but to like find the untold stories about the federal government that would like open our minds to new ways of thinking. Um, that's part of it. The other part of it is that like, to be quite honest, doing a like fully vetted, not vetted to do a, to do a, a, a fully honest and thorough explanation of, you know, why the, why the U S currently spends so much on military and to make an argument about whether or not that is good or bad, I think is slightly outside the scope of a 30 minute television show. It seemed so enormous, right? To say, look, American military hegemony is the primary fact of world history over the past hundred years, right? Mm -hmm. That is just the case. And so like, I agree that the primary effect of that hegemony over the last, you know, 50 years has been, like, killing poor people overseas who don't need to be killed, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's a pretty large question to ask, hey, what would the world be like if the U.S. had not exercised military hegemony over the entire world, right? I suspect it would be a better world. <laughs> I haven't done the research into it yet, and I think it was, to me, it felt too massive for half an hour of television. Is this, um, is this and, season and two? I think it's a bigger project. <laughs> and, and by the way, I think it also exceeds the scope of our show is about the government, not about foreign policy. That was sort of a, a, a division that we made in the show before we got into it. Um, and so for that reason, for our critique of the military industrial complex, we decided to focus into focus into military research. The fact that we spend, you know, the the, the government, the U.S. government is the is the largest funder of research of any kind on the planet. Unfortunately, most of it is military research, and that fucking sucks. And to me, that's a microcosm of that bigger problem. And so, you know, we talk about, we get into Vietnam, we talk about Agent Orange, you know, we talk about these things. Mm -hmm. We just, you know, look, it's very easy to say that what you said, right? And yeah. I don't disagree with it, but I'm, a show, I'm doing a show where I need to prove the thing that I'm saying. And right. I was like, I can't do that in half an hour. That's the, that's the honest answer to the question. Which uh, I will say, impressive that you managed to pull off uh, some little miracles when it came to healthcare. Because the healthcare episode specifically, I discovered some things I had no idea about. Um, I, I guess I'll start by saying, did you specifically want to kind of tailor, because you've got this investigation into the failures of the Trump administration leading into the failures of the Biden administration when it came to the COVID response. Um, and you do this little... Uh, this like really funny little sketch where you're a conductor and then we start learning about Reagan and you get into neoliberalism. You really do. I mean, anyone I don't think could watch that and not take away that you were directly critiquing neoliberalism, but it's really not heavy handed. It's it's not like, hey, everybody, here's why the free market is not the answer to all our, our, our problems. Were you trying to do it in such a way that you would convince either people who don't know about that history or who don't know about Reagan's union busting or who don't know about it, any of that? Uh, were you trying to make it palatable to them or were you just trying to make the whole thing less subtle and not be uh, an overwhelmingly preachy episode? I mean, a hundred percent. That's what we were trying to do. I mean, that like when we discussed that segment in uh, our writers' room, we discussed that this is a critique of the neoliberal turn, right? That's the that's the phrase that that historians use and that we used as well. But like, to be quite honest, and this gets back to my sort of feeling about labels, I don't think it's particularly helpful to like go in and say the problem is neoliberalism, you know, because. <laughs> Because then everyone who's like, yeah, I hate neoliberalism. I love this show. And everyone else is going to go either going to say, what the fuck are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Or they're going to say like, oh, it's one of these guys and they're yeah. going to change the channel. Right. And that's that to me is the problem. I'll be I'll go on, I'll go on a little bit of a limb here. Yeah. Um, that That's a, that's a problem with. I feel a lot of leftist argument making is that we go for the agreed upon term that we are all using and just toss it out there like everyone else is supposed to give a shit, you yeah. know, when in reality you need to lead people to it step by step, you know, 
And so, like, yeah, for us, it's like, I don't, I, I honestly don't give a shit if people use the term neoliberalism, right? Mm. Um, I'm kind of annoyed when I hear it. <laughs> like, I don't like hear, I don't know why, I just don't like hearing the word. Um, but the, uh, you know, the argument of, yes, over the past 50 to 70 years, the United States has taken core functions away from the government and given them to private businesses. And that's something that both parties have engaged in. That was like a really foundational story that we wanted to tell on this show. And like, you know, if I, if I come at you with that and I'm explaining it in a, you know, common sense, just like on the ground way, hey, you agree with point A, right? You agree with point B, right? Well, did you know that thing C happened? Did you know that thing D happened after that? Doesn't that seem kind of bad? People will go like, oh, oh yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty weird. You know what I mean? And then you've like educated people about the issue and you didn't need to like say the weird word that like people have reactions to, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, and uh, so, yeah, that was, that was absolutely the goal of that segment. I'm glad to, I'm glad you clocked it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was also going to ask, because I, I mentioned Miracle. Can you talk about the largest uh, publicly funded medical research institution on the planet, of which I yeah. didn't know it was that, and how they may be on the verge of curing sickle cell anemia and why that is such yeah. an incredible accomplishment? Yeah, absolutely. So that's the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. It's the largest funder of biomedical research on the planet. It's paid for by... Our tax dollars, I don't know about your tax dollars, you're in Vancouver, but, you know, maybe maybe you you pay American sales tax sometimes, it goes to yeah, that, I don't true. know. Um, uh, and, you know, the, the NIH has, like, measurably increased the American lifespan um, by, you know, doing foundational research on things like heart disease, cancer. You know, we haven't cured cancer, but we have, like, improved treatments for cancer, uh, et cetera, and it's just poured massive amounts of money into that research. Um, and specifically into research that no one else is doing. So sickle cell disease is a disease that um, affects predominantly uh, African-Americans, at least in the U.S. that's who it predominantly uh, affects because it's, it's a genetic disease. Um, and it's an extremely painful disease. It's a, uh, a disease that causes people to, to die early, but even if it doesn't kill you, you know, you're, you're going to the emergency room constantly, you're in horrible pain. And it's a disease that is chronically under-researched, um, and the people who uh, experience it don't receive uh, the treatment that they should be because of all the reasons that we've talk been talking about how, you know, the folks, because the folks who receive it are the folks who are most disadvantaged in American society, um, they don't receive the care that they should. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of, there are, there are a lot of like uh, diseases that affect a lot less people that get a lot more, you know, donor funding, right? you know, that have billionaires paying to try to get these diseases cured. That is not true of sickle cell disease. But at the NIH, they've been doing the basic research on how to cure it for um, uh, decades and decades. And they have multiple approaches going, uh, one of which is improved bone marrow transplants that, um, you know, bone marrow transplants can work, but they can be very risky. And they're working on how to, you know, uh, fix issues re regarding, you know, your body rejecting the transplant, that sort of issue. Um, and they're also working on a gene therapy program. Um, and and I, it's beyond me to tell you the the exact differences medically between those, but I know that those are multiple avenues of study. And um, they have been able to, in their clinical hospital where they treat people, uh, they treat patients, um, and they have been able to cure sickle cell disease. In, and we met one on the show. Uh, we, we met a patient who was cured. And it's, I mean, it's incredible. They They no longer have the disease. They're not going to the emergency room, you know, five or 10 times a year. Uh, it's transformative. Now, I, I believe there are still, you know, barriers to scaling those cures, right? And then that is what the work of the next few years is going to be. Um, and, you know, maybe someone in the chat uh, follows medical news slightly more closely than me and knows exactly how long we can expect to see those roll out. <laughs> um, but, uh, you, you know, it's, it's incredible work. Um, and it was something we were really, really excited to highlight. Um, it's also, though, you know, this incredible contrast because we also talk about how local public health departments around the country have been starved of funding um, for the past 30 years. We go to Lowndes County, Alabama, an extremely poor, predominantly black county where there's a single doctor in the entire county and there is a, a single publicly funded uh, public health center that provide all medical care to the entire county. And as a result of that understaffing, that county at one point had one of the highest COVID-19 positivity rates in the country just before we visited it. 
and so that's an incredible contrast in America, right? That we have this like this cathedral of medical research that is curing our deadliest diseases, the ones who aff affect the folks who are most in need of help, and we cannot get funding for basic basic health. We're talking, you know, STD treatment. We're talking just like making sure that people are able to get vaccinated, you know, these basic things. Um, and that is a, you know, it's a tale of two cities, right, um, in our government. And that was something that we were, it was really, really important to us to show. And that story that we tell about the neoliberal turn is a big part of the explanation for how we got to that place. I, um, I, I know I run the risk of having a lot of people on the left saying that I'm uh, uh, promoting a show, uh, you know, funded by a, uh, a, a neoliberal warmonger like Obama or something. But I want to I want to turn this to the last episode because this is when I, I truly felt you had made something special was. And this is why I feel the show is kind of a Trojan horse. And if you were wondering what people in chat are saying, some of them are completely agreeing with you and saying, like, man, this makes so much sense. I don't understand half the shit that Lance talks about. <laughs> <laughs> this, putting things in simple language and leading people to where you want them to be rather than preaching and being like capitalism bad he said the thing kind of stuff place for both there's a place for both things right i'm not i'm not against people who are like into the theory and 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 use those words we we create those words for a reason because they're specific but that's not my role. That's not what I try to yeah. do. But I'm sorry. Please go on. Well, no, but it, it is really important to make it accessible. And the last yeah. episode, your message is something that I've been preaching for so long, which is you feel helpless in the world. And we all do. And it doesn't matter because everything seems grander than you or larger than you. The federal government, the presidential race, everything. Why doesn't anyone concentrate on small local politics? Because that makes the, all the difference in your life. Because the things like the police budget, for example, and how they're run, and if they're disproportionately arresting black Americans over white Americans when they use drugs at the same rate, you can affect that at your local level. That that was the entire kind of thesis I felt getting near the end. Um, can you talk a little bit about why that's important to you, why you wanted to direct people in that direction, and then maybe the incredible stories that came out of Philadelphia uh, that really yeah. were inspiring at the end of the day? Yeah, so that episode, you know, came out of my own frustration. Uh, we were making the show, uh, you know, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and the aftermath of those protests. And, you know, I was sitting there going like, my God, I live here in L.A., and 30 years ago, we had protests against the murder of Rodney King, right? Or the beating of Rodney King, excuse me. Um, and it, it was the same fucking thing. You know what I mean? Like, what, like we, people have been protesting about this for as long as I've been alive. Why has there not been change? Um, and what do we do when we need change? Um, and so we actually had an entire other episode that was going to be our final episode. And we threw it away because I wanted to answer that question. Um, and the answer that we found was that uh, th that that change happens locally, um, that when it comes to criminal justice, which is, uh, you know, the the most for me, uh, it's climate change and it's criminal justice as being the two issues that are that are the most uh, the most important. I mean, the criminal justice system in America is uh, it's our greatest national sin. It is such a an, an abusive it's it's wrong on every level. The the number of people we're imprisoning, the number of people who are being killed who should not be being killed, um, the the way that we treat people who do commit so called crimes. You know, it's it's it, it's an abomination. And so, what can we do about it? And the truth is that the criminal justice system is primarily controlled locally in America. Um, that the, if you were to look at the uh, who is most responsible for. Uh, mass incarceration in America, it's local district attorneys, it's city and county district attorneys who have enormous latitude to, to issue whatever sentence they want to whoever comes in. Um, and that's an elected position <laughs> everywhere <laughs> in America. We vote for those people. And so we, the voters, have been voting for it, right? I, I mean, look, I, I know many people have not been voting for it, but it is like it, it's it's part of democracy, right? Which means it's one of the things that we theoretically can change. And so one of the one of the most encouraging trends that has happened in the United States is that for the first time we have started to see progressive prosecutors run for these positions. Um, and when they get in, they do things like they stop uh, prosecuting low level drug crimes and sending people to prison for having, you know, a 16th a of weed in their pocket or whatever. Um, and specifically, specifically, we found there's this group called Reclaim Philadelphia in Philadelphia. Um, they're all former Bernie Sanders volunteers. 
uh, and organizers. And after 2016, they said, okay, well, what can we do to keep our momentum going? What should we do with all of our organizing? And they found, hold on a second, we can focus on the district attorney's race. And by just old fashioned fucking organizing, right? Knocking on doors, community meetings, community outreach, they got a new district attorney elected named Larry Krasner, who made headlines across the United States because he was the first one of these progressive prosecutors elected. And he immediately started changing criminal justice in their city. Um, uh, he started, you know, refusing to prosecute juveniles as adults, things like that. Um, and the system immediately fought back against Larry Krasner, right? You had all of his former process. He fired all the prosecutors, right? And all the prosecutors said, oh, this guy's a bum. We got to get him out of there. Um, he immediately, you know, the press started writing about this guy's crazy. What's he doing, etc. Um, but they were able to also get Larry Krasner reelected because they were so organized and they were connected with the community of people who were affected by the previous DA's uh, uh, policies. And as a result, they are now a political powerhouse in Philadelphia. And they are, they just got a whole slate of, they didn't just get Larry Krasner elected, reelected. They got a whole slate of judges elected too. Like they are really fucking changing things there. And two of their organizers are now uh, state uh, senators and representatives. Um, And so like that to me, I was like, this is the model, right? This is people getting together and making change where they live. And that inspired, uh, now in LA, we have a progressive prosecutor named George Gascon. There's one in San Francisco named Chesa Boudin, who, uh, you know, both of these prosecutors, by the way, are under enormous attack right now. Um, and they're not being defended by the progressives who should be pro- protecting them because of, of how much attack they're under. Uh, but this is like, this is how we change criminal justice reform. I mean, it would be, I, I wish to hell the National Democrats weren't running away from criminal justice reform. And I find it shameful. And I wish they were up there making the case. But the point is, at the end of the day, it's got to be local. Um And that, you know, the reason I wanted to do that episode, the reason we threw out an entire other episode to do that story is that this is part of what I've done in my own life as well, my own activism. I, I like over the last five years have gotten really immersed in local politics in Los Angeles. Um, and you know, I, I, I work in homelessness. I've, I, you know, have, have, uh, knocked doors for candidates. I've become incredibly active in my union. Uh, and for me, it's been really transformative. Uh, I think that a combination of the national political parties, big business and social media have made us think that the only ways that we can get involved are to donate to the big political parties, to vote once every couple years and to hashtag on social media. And mm-hmm. the fact is none of those things are where political change comes from. Political change comes from dedicated groups of citizens getting together in meetings locally over and over again to make change. And the proof is that's how the other side is fucking doing it. That is how we have lost, uh, that, that is how you know the, the Second Amendment nuts won their case. And that is how the anti-abortion activists have uh, done it as well. Those used to be minority positions. They still are minority positions, um, but they have been able to bend the political system to their will by organizing locally and being so much more organized than everybody else. So um, that is what I am trying to urge people to do is to actually like, look, it's it's one. I'm so glad that people are watching you here on Twitch, Lance. Right. But let's be honest. We're not changing anything by watching each other talk on the Internet. Right. We're spreading ideas. But the important thing is after Lance concludes this broadcast, go look up your fucking local DSA chapter or go look up your local chapter of a mainstream political party that you could maybe show up to a meeting of and like try to t- overturn or start. If you're in a union, go to a local union meeting, start or if, or go to a non-political group, right? I'm also a member of a homelessness neighborhood coalition where we just go and do street outreach and, and like, you know, participate in uh, trying to make uh, a better life for our, for our unhoused neighbors. Um, it is so easy to be depressed and angry when all you do is sit at home and scroll on the internet. But if you start going to meetings every week and you meet other people who feel the same way you do, and you guys start talking about, Hey, what do we do next? Hey, 
what if we run someone for this position? And then someone says, hey, Adam, wow, you're really organized about this. Could you help us like run our get out the vote campaign? Could you help uh, run a fundraiser next week? Could you do X, Y, Z? You're not going to have time to be depressed anymore. You're going to be too fucking busy. And then when you see something actually change in your city, oh my God, it is incredibly empowering. And you start realizing that is what we do and we need to roll that and build on that. Uh, sorry, I've ranted on and on, but- No, that that, <laughs> that, was, that was a better rant in how to get actual political change done than like 90% of what like online lefties spew all day. <laughs> yeah, oh. I, I mean, look, there's a place for being angry at those in power who have failed us, right? But once you acknowledge they have failed us and we are angry, what do you do next? You know, do you just go on every day and say, you failed us, you failed us, you failed us, do better, do better, do better, right? When you know these people aren't gonna fucking do better, right? Mm -hmm. um, what do you do? You figure out how to kick them out and get new people. You figure out how to make the change you wanna see, you know? like. Uh, something I hear people on the left talk a lot about is, you know, anti-electoralism that like we're not going to like win what we need to just by voting for better people. And I agree with that. And that means we all got to get out there and actually make the change, you know? Yeah. Um, well, like you were mentioning and, and that's what I programs. try to encourage people to do. That's that's now what I try to do. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say you were mentioning multiple programs like it doesn't even just have to be, uh, you know, you're voting for a local uh, organizer in your area, like start a community fridge, work for a food insecurity group, food, like food, right. not bombs, whatever it is. Right. Like it doesn't have to just be politics. But I think the desperation in politics doesn't come from the fact that, like, you can't be politically effective by putting someone like Shamus Want in, in you know, Washington. Like anyone can look and see $15 minimum wage, rent freezes, stuff like that. That does have an effect. I think it's the higher level. We've got this idea thanks to the way politics is sports that like you know if we don't win the president if bernie sanders isn't the president uh, there's no point in voting at all or the electoral process is, is moot right and i think that that's what that episode is really good at like what was the number 15 percent, right you said 15 percent of people vote in local elections that yeah. that's a that's a very easy number to beat that's a very easy yeah. number to get people organized around you have no competition there's not a lot standing in your way outside of you know banding together yeah. And and here's the crazy thing. I mean, I live in Los Angeles. It's a city of millions and millions of people, depending on, you know, whether you're talking about the city or the county. Right. It's the most populous county in the United States. Um, I have only spent like three or four years getting involved in local politics. And I now know like a lot of the people who who are like doing it every day. Right. I, I like text friends who are like working on political candidates and they're going to flip a seat. You know, and um, it's like the world of that is so much smaller than you think it is. Like in addition to the number, the few number of people who are voting, the number of people who are trying to win those votes is incredibly tiny. And as a result, I guarantee where you live, there is some snoozing dumbass politician <laughs> who won their seat because nobody was paying attention. And you will be shocked at how easy it is to unseat them. You will be shocked, I guarantee you. And if you can get someone who actually represents your values, now you're, you're not gonna change everything in your city overnight, but maybe you can redirect some money, et cetera, you know? And then yes, beyond politics, it's like, what's the actual activism that you can do, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, what is what is the, you know, there's so much that you can do that is not political, uh, that is just literally building systems that will make life better for people directly, simply through your actions. Well, I guess the most important thing I could ask you is, will there be a season two? And if so, do you have any ideas? I would love there to be. Netflix is so far calling this a limited series, um, okay. which is their term for a mini series. But, you know, it, it seems to be clicking with people. I'm here talking to you after all. People seem to be seeing it. Response on social has been good. So if the numbers are good, nothing's out of the question. And yeah, I would love to do more. But even if we don't do more of this series specifically, this sort of format of comedy documentary where I, you know, am exposing truths that need to be exposed using comedy is uh, something I'm not going to stop doing and I'm going to keep doing wherever I can. Um, yeah. Um, oh, just one quick thing before I forget. Um, my partner wanted to thank you. Uh, she said she noticed immediately that you chose a very diverse cast, which she's like, I don't often see mm -hmm. in, in these kind of shows. She's Filipino. So she was she was very happy with your, your casting decisions there. I'm so um, happy to hear that. Adam, where can they find the show? Where can they find you? Where can they go learn about the G word? 
You can find the show on Netflix. Uh, it's called The G Word. Um, you can find me wherever you get your social media. Uh, I hope that folks listening here might uh, check out my podcast, Factually, where I interview a different expert uh, from around the world of human knowledge every week. We do um, uh, a lot of topics that will probably be of interest to folks uh, folks watching now, such as criminal justice reform, um, economics, uh, just lots of good shit that has the same sort of bent that you know me for. Um, and uh, yeah, please check it out. And uh, I post a lot of really spicy shit to TikTok. So you can follow me on TikTok <laughs> as well if you like. But please listen to the podcast. That's what I'm trying to get people to to listen to because it, it seriously is uh, a labor of love. And I, I hope people check it out. And the show's again called the g-word on netflix uh thank you so much for being on the show that was uh amazing and inspiring it was a it was an absolute pleasure thank you so much Lance. love to come back again sometime soon bye everyone adam conover uh the g-word go watch it it's uh it's a really good show uh it is a uh, a surprising trojan horse of lefty ideas but it's not for the left or the right it's for everyone it's for the normies it's it's a really good normie pill show uh, I wouldn't. I uh, I came in watching it and I was a little taken aback by the opening scene with Obama and I was like, oh no, no, no I, gotta, I gotta talk about this tomorrow. And by the time I was done, I was like, that was fucking excellent. You you figured it out. I, I keep talking about messaging on the show, how important it is to get people out to go join the IWW, go unionize, go join the DSA, go do direct action, all that kind of stuff. But it's way better when you've got something that can actually broadly appeal to everybody. You know, go uh, go wa- go watch it. You know. His older work elaborates on his, his recent work. Yeah, that is that is entirely true. He's he's certainly always been uh, you know someone who seems to have a really good, I'd say, a really good knack at uh, getting lots of people to understand very difficult concepts. So you've just been listening to an episode of the Surf Times, and if you enjoy it and want to see the Surf Times, you can go to wearesurfs.com or watch the live shows at thesurfs.tv. And also everywhere social media is sold, basically thesurfs.tv. You'll find us there. Twitter.com slash TheSurfsTV, for example. It would also help us out tremendously if you could leave a good review of this podcast if you enjoyed it, either on, I don't know, iTunes or wherever you're podcasting. Apparently it does help. And yeah, we hope to see you soon. To our gods, Xander Corvus and Peyton L. Just, we are prepared to conduct many a human sacrifices in your honor. To our monarch, Tom Spiker, we are but your humble yet incompetent gestures trying in vain to bring some levity into your life. To our Lord Trevor R., we give you thanks for this meager plot of land for us to toil away our pathetic existence. To our brave knights, Carl Wauer, Tony, DM Rivera, Resident Scarecrow, Sir Nickus, Mayred, Cheryl Alvarez, Ruben Kelly, Brandon, Words Greenwood, Nate, Hegbird Celine, Matthew Scarborough, Stellar Vision, Ariane McCarthy, Daniel Sutton, Coulter Smith, Jenna Tao, Quiet185, Anna Loves Riley, Omni, Riley and Anna, Poodlehawk, The Tim Caucus, Multimondi, Trevor Janis, Lemmy101, Anthropophojack, Saren42, Catherine, Ramon Acosta, Incosin, Agent NDN, Violent Orchard, Political Puppy, Andreas Chiringuito, Zach Christensen, Todd Buckingham, and Todd Lajeunesse. We salute our mighty heroes off to conquest some bread in some far-off land.